Welcome to the Genome Podcast. I'm Misha Angrist from Genome Magazine and Duke University. Today's guest is Luke Timmerman, an award-winning journalist who has covered biotechnology since 2001. He is the founder and editor of Timmerman Report, a biotech newsletter. Previously, he covered biotechnology at the Seattle Times, Xconomy, and Bloomberg News. He's been a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and was named one of the 100 most influential people in biotech in 2015 by Scientific American. We talk mostly about his recent book, Hood, Trailblazer of the Genomics Age, about biotech pioneer Leroy Hood. Pulitzer Prize-winning science writer Deborah Blum calls Hood a terrific portrait, not just of Hood, but science itself, both of them human, flawed, complicated, and ultimately triumphant. Thank you for doing this, Luke. Yeah, great to be here. Did you grow up here? No, I grew up in southwestern Wisconsin, um, and I'm a graduate of the University of Wisconsin. Came out here for uh, to Seattle for an internship at the Seattle Times, and this would have been late '90s. And I sort of fell in love with the mountains and the ocean and the outdoors and resolved that I would try to uh, get, a, get a job in journalism out here someday. You were at the Seattle Times for a while. Yes. So I started there in the spring of 2000. Uh, this was uh, back when newspapers were still growing and doing pretty well, and they would hire some guy in his mid-20s who showed some promise as an intern um, to do a variety of things in the business department. So that's how I got started. And business eventually morphed into biotechnology in uh, summer of 2001. Did you leave because of the implosion of newspapers or was there something else going on? Uh, that was a factor in my mind. I thought that the, the internet was ascendant here in about the mid-2000s and newspapers were struggling to adapt to that and, and looking like they were making cut after cut after cut and I didn't think that was going to be a lot of fun or help me advance in the biotech um, specialty that I was developing. So um, I, I looked around, I got a different job at Bloomberg News um, and moved to San Francisco for a while and covered national biotech. Uh, whereas previously I had focused strictly on the Northwest region. So that was a good experience writing for a national audience, a financial crowd, um, and getting to know the biggest companies in the industry. Um, after that, I, uh, I had my startup experience at Xconomy. So I moved back to Seattle, um, still had friends and family here, owned a house, I liked the quality of life. Uh, worked for about six years there, um, building that uh, online audience. For the uninitiated, what was or is Xconomy? So Xconomy uh, was a website started in 2007 uh, to, devoted to coverage of high-tech, biotech, and all sorts of innovative businesses. We would write about companies at the very early days when they'd raised their first million dollars and had a dream, um, all the way up through the most innovative, interesting thing going on at a big company. 
Um, but that was a lot of fun because uh, as a business reporter, sometimes you can get bogged down writing the, the mundane uh, quarterly earnings reports and the mergers and acquisitions, all this sort of stuff that uh, is the basic nuts and bolts. But uh, I really enjoyed getting into the science and, and thinking about the strategy of how you take a scientific discovery or a, a tech enabling technology and apply that in a, a useful way for patients. After six years, what happened? Well, I had the itch to write a book, <laughs> uh, and that was the, the biography of Lee Hood. You, you already knew this guy. You'd interviewed him many times, and yet you decided to double down and write a book. After uh, a certain number of interviews or a certain amount of time going over thousands of pages of documents, you can get tired of your subject. Uh, you can sometimes see that in biographies, I think. I really didn't get tired of, of him. I found uh, I just kept peeling back more and more layers of the onion, so to speak, and, and it, it held my attention. I, I think Hood, for those who don't know him or haven't met him, this is a very energetic, charismatic character. He, he, uh, he is one of these people who attracts a lot of money and attention and smart people around his, his visions. And I happened to start covering biotech in, as I said, in 2001. And this was right around the time he was getting his Institute for Systems Biology started. And so he was in full entrepreneurial mode the full force of his personality was there very evident and and I, uh, I I was intrigued here was a guy who had had harsh critics and ardent fans and not a lot in between clearly um, his his research from years previous had laid the foundation for a lot of modern biology and I just thought there's got to be a great story to tell here your book actually opens with this kind of moment of truth, I guess, where he's been at the University of Washington for some time. He has an endowed professorship and he has Bill Gates as his patron. And he gets, that is Hood, gets frustrated with the bureaucracy and the politics of academia and decides he's done, he's out, and he's going to go his own, go on his own and, and start his own institute. And he drives over to see Bill Gates. And not only does he tell him that he's quitting, but he asks him to fund his new venture, which just struck me as Wow, enormous cojones. <laughs> you could certainly say that. The, the man uh, showed a lot of audacity throughout uh, many moments through his career, and that was one. Yeah. Is that why you, you chose to start with that? Because it's sort of quintessential Hood-esque moment? Yeah, I, I think it is. It's also one of those key turning points in his life. I mean, all of our lives have one of those big decisions we make where, who we're going to get married to, you know, where we're going to go to college. Uh, and sometimes, you know, we can plan those things and sometimes they don't go according to plan. And that uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that, that big uh-oh moment that Hood experienced right there, that, that Bill was 
his friend, and they they bonded over some shared intellectual interests. But by that point, Bill had seen enough of his management style, where he wasn't just going to, on a whim, uh, fund Hood's latest adventure, and that was kind of a slap in the face to Hood. So I thought there was. It's a it's a quintessentially human moment, but also <laughs> I think uh, from a from a marketing perspective, I did try to think of the average reader who doesn't know who this guy Hood is can instantly get that. Okay, you might not have heard of him, but Bill Gates was intimately familiar with him and, and his work, and so there's a reason to pay attention right away. And, and then we can launch into where he's born and raised and, and the more classic linear biography structure. So you obviously knew him fairly well, having written about him over the years. And so when you approach him and say, Lee, I'd like to write a book about you, is he game? He was, right away. It so happened that he had gotten to this point in his life where he had thought about telling his life story. People had shown interest in it at academic talks, so he kind of had a, a slideshow that he would give. He thought about writing his own memoir, but I came along and said, I have a different idea. I'd like to do this in a totally independent way, sort of like how Walter Isaacson did it with Steve Jobs, what you could call the living biography. And I liked that because, uh, that form, because, I mean, you can write about you can write biographies about dead people, right? Where all you have is the documentary record. Maybe you can interview their children or grandchildren. But I think it's uh, it, we're living in this amazing time for biology, and a lot of the people who have made amazing contributions are still alive. So there's an opportunity there to talk with them, interview them, fill in some of the gaps that may not be there in the documentary record. So if you can combine the documents with the interviews. I think you could have a pretty good a pretty good tale. And so I, I pitched that to him, and uh, as part of the ground rules, um, he would have no editorial control over this. He would open up his papers, he would sit down for as many interviews as it would take over a couple of years, and hope for the best. Do you think he was imagining that you would write a hagiography? Yeah. I talked about that explicitly, and I said uh, that was not my intention at all. I didn't really know what I was going to find. I mean, how would you? But I did make that clear that I, I wasn't interested in hagiography or hero worship, yeah. and uh, that I would have to talk to uh, both his friends and family as well as his, uh, his enemies and, and try to get a, a 360 view of him as a whole person and as a scientist. And uh, he did not have a problem with that. I think he was confident that mm. um, he would still come through that process l looking pretty, pretty good. Yeah. I'm a bit surprised that there were quite a number of people who went on the record saying unflattering things about him, um, in particular people in his lab. And I think one of the remarkable things about this book is I suspect Will resonate with anyone who's worked in a high-stakes biology lab where the currency is publications and grants, all of these measures of success. Did it require cajoling or...? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's all part of the 
the journalist's or the biographer's task is to uh, convince people that your project is worthy and they should spend some time talking to you. There were a lot of people, more than 100 people interviewed for this book, and they came from all persuasions, critics as well as um, his supporters. And even uh, some of his close friends had some rather unflattering things to say. I, I, think, yeah. I think people immediately bought in uh, that uh, that this was a worthy project and not the sort of thing that it gets done very often. Mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, they people were were very good in uh, in agreeing to tell me the the story, warts and all, as they saw it. His early life has a real sort of Horatio Alger quality. It, it, it's almost like. As I was reading, I felt like I was watching kind of a, a Western movie or something. A lonely but eternally optimistic and driven young man growing up in Montana. Childhood, our origins, it's important to who we become. We know this. And so uh, I thought that was very important that I spend some time and attention on, on those beginnings. And Montana, particularly when he was growing up in the 40s and 50s, is a very windswept, isolated place. He went to small town schools, and his graduating class was just 43 or 44 kids. His dad was uh, an electrical engineer by training and worked at the telephone company, a smart guy, a tinkerer, but um, they didn't see a whole lot of the world outside of Montana. It was uh, only through... Um, I think I think there, but there was real benefit in coming from such a place, uh, in a time and place when childhood was very unstructured. He would run off and play with neighborhood kids uh, without any adults around, as little as the age of five or six. He wasn't being shuttled between soccer practices and piano like kids today, um, and that uh, allowed a lot of imagining which kids naturally do. One uh, distinguished scientist who happened to grow up in the same time and place, Irv Weissman from Stanford, reflected on that uh, upbringing and said, you know, we also didn't have a, a sense of hierarchy. There was nobody, there were no adults in power who said we should do this or shouldn't do that. Uh, we could look at the natural world and, and imagine just about anything that we might do. And, and I think that's very important to understanding Hood and the person he became. And so when he eventually winds up at Caltech, there's this kind of fish out of water. He had never seen a black person. He had never met a Jewish person. All of a sudden, he's in a really uh, competitive environment, and he's not necessarily the smartest guy in the room anymore. He had never even taken calculus in high school. He barely got in on the math part of the entrance exam. Here's a guy who's very talented and driven. He's got a great combination of things going for him, but um, he also was in the right place at the right time, or there were certain twists of fate. And one of them in high school, for it was a kid from small town Montana, he encounters a science teacher who happened to have been a Caltech graduate. And he vowed personally that he ever, uh, if he ever came across a student that um, he thought had real ability, he would do what he could to direct to that student uh, to Caltech. And so he went so far as to even talk to Hood's parents about this and kind of convince them to go off to far away Los Angeles to this great place and, and challenge their son. 
And, you know, they were a little hesitant. They thought, you know, maybe he should go to Montana State. That's close by. We can afford it. Ultimately, um, he ends up going to Caltech. And as you say, yes, he, he finds out very quickly that uh, he's in the deep end of the pool here. Uh, this is a very pressure-packed place, uh, very hard math, physics, chemistry curriculum for freshmen and sophomores. He wasn't all that ready for a lot of it. He wasn't the smartest kid in school. And so he really had to work, and, and that he did. And also quarterback the football team, or it was a running back <laughs> at Caltech. He was a quarterback in high school. He played quarterback one season in high school. Um, he also played defensive back. They played both sides, uh, offense and defense in those days. And he went to Caltech, although he, he likes to tell his football glory stories. <laughs> and, and Caltech didn't have much of a football team. He thought his high school team could have beaten Caltech. <laughs> what? defines him, sort of his place in molecular biology and genomics, maybe only paralleled by George Church, is this idea that it's not enough to be a scientist. You have to be an inventor. You have to be sort of equal parts Darwin and Willy Wonka. Where do you think that came from? Bill Dreyer was his uh, advisor at Caltech, and he was the one who um, influenced Hood around this idea that he needed to divide his time between biology and technology. And that really, this was, remember, this is a very competitive young man. He played football, right? He wanted to win. Uh, he wanted to make a name for himself. And Dreyer made that case that if you want to advance a field, if you want to make a name for yourself that way, uh, the way to do it is to develop a new kind of technology that enables you to gather new kinds of data so you can ask new kinds of questions. So it's really a way to advance your science. And this is something that I think a lot of people to this day don't understand very well about Hood. They think of him first and foremost as a technologist, the guy who led the team that developed the first automated DNA sequencer. And that really is the signature achievement. That's why he's bookworthy in the first place. But if you really want to understand, it's very important to the understanding of Hood to know that he was first and foremost a biologist. He was driven by getting the answer to that question of immunology, that, that one about the nature of antibody diversity. And so the tools were not, he didn't just develop tools because they were cool. He wanted the tools to advance his science. They were not a solution in search of the problem. He knew what the problem was. He just didn't have adequate tools as a graduate student, toiling late in the night, you know, fiddling with the, the primitive instruments they had. The tools weren't good enough to give him the answers that he wanted. He resolved early on that he it was going to straddle these two worlds with uh, the advice of Dreyer. And yeah, he ran into a lot of resistance among uh, academic colleagues who thought, this is dabbling, this is mere, you know, crank turning, engineering is beneath us, um, we great men, and they were mostly men of biology. Uh, and you, if you want to advance the, the field of immunology that you say, you need, to, you need to go all in and don't divide your focus. He pushed back against that. Somehow to invent something and commercialize it was not only a distraction from pure basic research, but it tainted the enterprise. 
Yeah, so biology went through a strange phase there. Um, we can say that now with the benefit of hindsight, but there was an anti-technology bias. There was this idea that that should be left to industry. Those people in industry, they, they turn the cranks and come out with the widgets, and that's not what we do, which is very different from chemistry and physics. Like They understand that developing of technologies, you know, a new telescope, for instance, is very important to advancing astrophysics so you can ask new questions. But biology was slow to embrace technology. And this idea that you could make money yourself, when the biotech wave came along in the 80s, that, that really caused a lot of consternation across campuses everywhere. They, uh, biologists just hadn't collaborated really in that sort of way and they weren't sure uh, what was right it, how to how to go about it they certainly didn't want to sacrifice academic freedom and let someone come along and say what they could and couldn't publish do do a deal with the devil kind of thing so i mean that that took some time for institutions to come to terms with and figure out rules of the road but Hood, being entrepreneurial by nature, he was very quick to embrace this. It was if somebody else wanted to come along and fund his research or technology in some way, I mean, that was all fine with him, whether it was corporations, foundations, NIH grants. They were all welcome. He would put it all together, and he'd figure out some way to come up with something good. That, that was his attitude toward that, that wave. Uh, and, and it really served him well uh, as biotech increasingly you know, caught on and, and became a more serious source of funding. There are also moments in the book where he's being a showman. I, I have a vague memory of seeing him give a talk in graduate school, and he was sort of one of the first to embrace multiple slide projectors. There was this kind of, you know, dog and pony show when Lee Hood came to town. At the same time, you talk about how this made many of his colleagues and trainees in particular uneasy because he would sometimes exaggerate. Yes. You know, it's funny you mentioned the dual slide projector because person after person that I talked to couldn't really remember the details of his talks, but they remember that dual slide projector before that was common. And Hood developed this speaking style, which was very charismatic and captivating. And he would sort of give you this world tour of all the research that you know his big lab was doing in the late 70s and through the 80s. And it was this, he gave you this sense he was on this great adventure in science. They were doing all these great things. And it, uh, it served many purposes. I mean, one, it was a way for him to raise money. So he honed that, that speaking style to do that, to recruit uh, bright young scientists wherever he went giving these talks, but also to intimidate his rivals, as if to say, don't even bother. I've already nailed that question that you thought about doing or, or want to do next week. <laughs> Again, that's the competitor coming out. So, and, and you know, when he won the National Medal of Science years later, there was actually a reference in the citation to his inspiring talks that that was part of why he won that award because so many people saw him give talks all around the world and, and were inspired to pursue careers 
in biology. Maybe a little discouraged about one question or two that, that was showing up in their research agenda, but um, ultimately he, he attracted, it, it was like uh, moths to a flame. So mid-70s, Wally Gilbert and Fred Sanger invent DNA sequencing separately. Sanger sequencing goes on to be sort of the gold standard, but it's still a pain in the ass. And Lee Hood comes along and he, along with Mike Hunkapiller and some other folks, develops the automated DNA sequencer. So can you give us a sense of why that was such a big deal? Oh, yeah. So the the Sanger sequencing, as you say, was um, it was time and labor intensive. Um, late 70s, early 80s, you'd have graduate students who would spend almost their whole career just trying to really nail the, the DNA sequence of a gene. I mean, it sounds like something from the Stone Age today that that was what people did. They'd work for years just to try to determine the sequence of one gene that makes one protein of interest. That would get you on the cover of nature or science. Yeah. So Hood, you know, going back to, I mean, early days, he, he had this, he was imbued with this idea that technology can, can speed up what we do and enable us to ask all kinds of different questions. It can improve our science. He, he had worked on a, what turned out to be a quartet of instruments at Caltech. It started with the protein sequencer, and, and they also did a protein synthesizer, as well as a DNA synthesizer, and ultimately the DNA sequencer. The DNA sequencer was the most difficult challenge, but um, the idea what, with the protein sequencer at first was that if you could determine the, the amino acid sequence of something of interest, like say interferon, you could work backwards and determine what the DNA sequence was to make that. But that was, again, time and labor intensive. And so ideally, you'd want you know a variety of instruments working together in some semi-industrial kind of way to, to churn out the answers you're looking for. And he, he put together that team, late 70s, early 80s, to, to start working on automated DNA sequencing. It was a very hard problem. If we jump ahead, he was always interested in human biology. Maybe you could talk about sort of the creation of the Institute for Systems Biology and, and what is P4? He went to the University of Washington uh, in the early 90s at the invitation of Bill Gates. Bill Gates uh, became captivated in the early 90s with um, this idea that biology was getting more and more data on DNA. This is like the very beginning of the Human Genome Project. Uh, people were talking about, you know, well, is this feasible? Uh, is this a good idea? <laughs> the late 80s, early 90s. Hood was one of the early uh, proponents of the project, selling it to Congress. The, the tools were beginning to improve to the point where you could imagine this. And Hood, thinking a few steps ahead of a lot of his peers, Hood is thinking, okay, if we're going to get more and more of this data, then we're going to need computers to help us sift through it and analyze it. And uh, that is what captivated 
young Bill Gates's imagination. Bill was still in his mid-30s. He had kind of the moppy hair and the Coke bottle glasses. People remember him. Just you know, the young tycoon. <laughs> and uh, they hit it off. And he comes to the University of Washington with this idea that he's going to continue to develop more and more of these tools that can work in a sort of hand-in-glove, kind of semi-industrialized, mostly academic, but part industrial kind of setting. So you would have uh, improved DNA sequencers, the beginnings of automated mass spec for proteins, cell sorters, and all, this is all going to further automate and speed up biology, ask you, allow you to ask bigger questions. So they had some success in the early years, but Hood found it difficult to, uh, to work organizationally within a, a state, uh, a big state institution, a bureaucracy, lots of rules and regulations, lots of paperwork. You can't just uh, run out and raise some money and buy a, a whiz-bang new machine. And, and he didn't quite know how to operate within the, the confines of, of that, that kind of place. And so that is what led to a lot of his difficulties with the administration. And as those tensions were, were developing in the mid to late 90s, he had this other big idea. He could see that the Human Genome Project was going to head toward its conclusion and what was going to be next. And so he, had to th he thought about systems biology. And this was the idea that you could track networks of genes, cells, all, and organs, um, all, all the way up to the whole organism, ultimately. We're not there yet. But you would have to tear down disciplinary walls and create sort of like a company within the university with mathematicians, computer science, molecular biology, biochemistry, all these people who have their traditional departments and their turf. And, and he wanted to put them all under one roof and, and direct the research agenda. And, you know, as you might imagine, this didn't go over so well with a lot of the ex established powers that be at the University of Washington. He had a, another big vision. It clashed with the status quo, and he, um, he ended up quitting in a huff, as you alluded to at the, at the beginning of, of our talk here. He had to break the news to Bill. Or as Groucho Marx would say, in a minute and a huff. <laughs> it was building for some time, and then, it, then came the huff. You spend years writing this book. You do it on your terms. What does Lee Hood think of it? Yeah, he was a little sensitive, as you might imagine. His visionary genius comes through, but also his, um, his flaws as a manager. This guy is uh, not very attuned to the needs of his people. He's not good at resolving conflicts within his organization. There, there's some real gaps in basic management here, and I think it was hard for him to see that rendered on the page and to see what some people said about him. But I think he, over time, is warming up and will warm up to the book uh, because of the way other people are perceiving it, that it really is much bigger than just the hood life story. Uh, it's also a story that tells you a lot about biology and biotech history of the past 40 years. And it reveals a lot about the nature of the scientific enterprise. 
really how we organize this, this great endeavor. There are lots of different ways in which it is done. And here was a guy who stra he, he, he straddled some of those different models, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But these are, these are fundamental tensions that everybody in science is wrestling with. Whether you live in one of the, the PI-led, the principal investigator-led academic type labs, or whether you're in a biotech startup with some venture capital, or whether you're in a big company in sort of like the Skunk Works operation trying to do something, but, you know, trying to convince your boss that it's worth it. I mean, each of these kind of forms has its benefits, but, you know, they, they, they also have their weaknesses. And Hood, Hood was one of those people who was really unafraid to rattle a bunch of cages along the way, if, if need be, to to pursue his vision. He was gonna do it in whatever vehicle was, was right or necessary for that. And so I think this was just, I think anybody in science today, um, people, and a lot of people in business, maybe not even in science, just in business, will find some of these stories instructive for their day-to-day -day work. I have to ask you just strategically, you chose to publish it yourself, why? Oh boy, how long do we have? <laughs> I, I saw the world of publishing changing very rapidly. So I started on this project in the fall of 2012. And I, I just, uh, I, I wasn't sure that a big publishing house would be that interested in a biography of someone that's not a household name outside of biology. In terms of the, the trade press, I could, or a university press, I think that would have been more likely. I, I just, uh, I kind of wanted to keep my options open and see what the publishing world looked like. And so uh, I kept going and going and got to the point where I had a, a rough draft and I still hadn't committed myself. I, I did talk to one small publisher that had some interest. Uh, I talked to an agent. I wasn't real crazy about going through an agent and letting him have his cut. <laughs> it, it may have been helpful to, to do it a different way. I tried it this way with self-publishing. It was very important to me that I have quality editing and help on certain things that I wasn't good at. Like I got a graphic designer to design what I think is a compelling cover. I hired two editors to to make sure that I was maintaining accessibility. So I think you pick it up off the shelf, most average readers will, will not be able to tell any difference at all. This could have been published by anybody. But I think in terms of the, the marketing of the book, it would have probably been helpful to have somebody else um, out there um, advocating on its behalf and spending a little money on advertising and figuring out the, the right way to do that. It, it's kind of a confusing time in publishing, and um, that part has been um, a learning experience for me. <laughs> well, we're doing our part at Genome, and we want to spread the word and uh, encourage people to pick up the book. Uh, congratulations, and thanks for talking with me. Thanks very much, Misha. Pleasure to be here. Thanks to Luke Timmerman. You can find his book, Hood, Trailblazer of the Genomics Age, at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com, among other places. Thanks for listening to the Genome Podcast. 
Don't forget to check out our magazine, which comes out quarterly and is available online for absolutely free at genomag.com and by mail. Go to genomag.com and click subscribe at the top of the page for a free Dead Tree subscription. It's a beautiful magazine. Talk to you next time. 